Well, congregation, we have announced at the beginning of this series that the book of Acts is better understood to be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Acts of the Holy Spirit. And now in this chapter, uh, we rejoice to see the next move that the Holy Spirit makes. The first move that the Spirit made back in the book of Acts, you'll remember, was in Acts chapter 2. When uh, the Spirit was poured out upon the whole assembly there. And actually that was an act of Jesus Christ pouring the Spirit out upon the people there. But again, as I've said so many times already, uh, remember that was a Jewish audience. Yes, there were some non-Jews there, but they were proselytes then to the Jewish religion. They had adopted, even if they weren't ethnically a Jew, they had converted to the Jewish faith and they had practiced all the rites and the ceremonies of the Jewish religion. But now in Acts chapter 10, we rejoice to see that the Spirit makes his next move. And the next move is to gather in the Gentiles. Now there were already hints of it, right? Philip had baptized a eunuch. Peter had stayed at the house of Simon the Tanner, right? We had seen these things. But now the Spirit of God is poured out upon Gentile people as well. And so we see again the acts of the Holy Spirit, or maybe the acts of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father and pouring out now upon the church his gifts, the greatest gift, which is, of course is the Holy Spirit himself. And we, we considered last time Peter's... Uh, well, we considered before that Paul, remember, and the, and the pricks that God pricked him with, the, the goads that God used to, to bring Paul finally to this understanding that Jesus Christ was Lord. That was the revelation of God to the Apostle Paul. But also with Peter, as we considered last time, that, Paul, that God was, was pricking the conscience of Peter and unsettling his mind, not to believe that Jesus is Lord, he already believed that, but to understand that the Gentiles also stood on an equal footing before God. And the glorious truth that Peter now comes to understand in verse 34, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. So this is now uh, what Peter begins to understand. And I've called this then in my first point, Peter's slow realization. It began... Well, who knows when exactly it all began, right? Because when Peter left Jerusalem, and again, he saw these pockets of believers, and he saw Gentiles amongst them already, his thoughts must have been stirred. But then you remember, we considered this last week, that it was on the roof of the house of Simon the Tanner that God lowered that sheet in a vision to Peter and said, do not call unclean what God has cleansed. And Peter understood that then to refer to the Gentiles. But it was a slow realization it took Peter time to come to grips with this fact. And even after Peter had come to grips with it, he vacillated at times. Remember in Galatians 2 verse 11, that's the story where, remember, Paul has to confront Peter and say, Peter, you're not acting rightly. You're not acting according to the truth of the gospel by withdrawing from the, uh, having fellowships with, uh, with Gentile Christians. Again, you see... Uh, how, how real the Bible is, don't you, my friends? How it presents people as real men. And Peter, like so many of us, 
right? We can come to a strong conviction, but we waver on it. And Peter as well. So it was Peter's slow realization. Now, as we read this, as we read this story uh, of Peter preaching to the household of Cornelius, you read many of the same things that we had in the past. In fact, if you make a study of the sermons in the book of Acts, you'll find that many of them have almost always the same points to them, right? They all point to Jesus Christ. They all, as quickly as possible, get to Jesus of Nazareth. And here you see Peter preaching in verse 38 that God had anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. He did miracles. In verse 39, he talks about how they were witnesses of this. In verse 43, he's talking about of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And then it stops at the end of verse 43, but in verse 44, we're told that Peter is still speaking. He's carrying on. And then it happens. Suddenly, without warning, without any kind of premonition, without any kind of sign that this is about to take place, there's no countdown. Suddenly, down comes the Spirit of God again. And that's why I've entitled this sermon, my friends, Pentecost again. Because just as in Acts 2, we had the Jewish Pentecost. And really, again, it's, it's not entirely accurate to call it the Jewish Pentecost. The Jewish baptism in the Spirit is much better to call it. Now here we have the Gentile baptism. The Spirit comes down without warning, right in the middle of Peter's sermon. That's why my second point is Peter interrupted. Peter does not say, you know, and now the Spirit of God will come down. No, Peter has no idea. The people have no idea. But as Peter is preaching, down comes the Holy Spirit upon them. As we read, the Holy Spirit fell. And again, you hear that word fell, right? That, that's just to indicate something of the suddenness of it. The unpredictability of it. God in his sovereignty, the, the spirit falls upon those who are listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. I love verse 45. I love verse 45 because it wasn't just Peter who was slowly coming to this realization. But the Jewish Christians, some of who had accompanied Peter, they're shocked because they see the spirit of God coming down upon Gentiles. How can this be? They're, they're dumbfounded. Look at these Gentiles. They're speaking in tongues. They're exalting and praising God spontaneously. Again, they must have just burst into spontaneous praise right in the middle of Peter's sermon. They could not hold it in any longer. But the Jewish Christians, you can imagine them just standing there with, in, 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 again, astonishment when they see that the Spirit of God has come down upon Gentiles. This is amazing to them. They can hardly believe it. Verse 46 says, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Wow, that's evidence enough, isn't it? Again, tongues. Now, this isn't the kind of tongue speaking that we talk about later in, the, in Paul's letters in the book of Corinthians and such, but this is speaking in other languages. They spoke in languages that they had never learned. So Peter is interrupted. Now, my friends, I put in there a visible and invisible and visible. Because there's two things happening there, right? And that is always something that we have to keep in mind whenever we, we think about God's work in the heart of a sinner. But invisibly, the Spirit of God had already come down. And He was working in the hearts of those people. He changed their heart. We call that regeneration, right? They had received a new birth. Their heart was changed. Their eyes were open. They saw themselves as sinners. They saw and they owned their guilt before God. 
And they heard the preaching of Peter. They heard the name of Jesus, and they believed it. They took hold of it by faith. Invisibly, the Spirit of God is doing all this. But nobody can see that, right? The Jewish Christians that were with Peter, who had accompanied him, they couldn't see that part of it. But they certainly could see the effects of it, right? Because then we have here a visible pouring out of the Spirit. And that is the Spirit of God comes down visibly and enables these people to speak in tongues and to, and again, they burst into spontaneous praise. So there's an invisible side and there's a visible side to this. And so it always is when a person is converted, right? The Spirit moves where he desires, says Jesus to, uh, to uh, um, in John chapter 3. The Spirit moves where it desires, like the wind, it blows where it goes, where it desires. And you can't tell from where it came or where it's going, but you see the effects of it. And so we see it here. Well, then let me move to my third point here, Peter's exclamation. Peter's exclamation. And we see that, and this is the, actually the text for this morning in verse 47. Because again, Peter was speaking, right? He was going on talking about this and that and the next thing. Suddenly he's interrupted, right? He is, he, he, he is silenced by the Spirit falling upon the people. But as Peter is, is observing this situation, again, Peter always was such an impulsive person, very impetuous person. But now suddenly this thought blazes into his mind. And again, the first word, surely. Again, you see something of the passion of Peter here. Verse 47, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And so Peter asked this question, but the question obviously is expecting, well, of course not. There is nothing standing in the way of these people being baptized. Now, when have we seen this question again, congregation? We've seen this question before. And again, if you turn back to Acts 8, and when we talk about the eunuch in Acts 8 and verse 36, we've seen this question before. Because the eunuch, as he's riding along in the chariot, he's riding along and he says, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? It's the same kind of question, isn't it? What prevents me from being baptized? In other words, is there some issue? Is there some, is there some reason that you could raise that would prevent me from being baptized? And now Peter in his, in his thinking, he says, the Spirit of God has come down upon these people. What possible reason can anyone bring why these should not be baptized? Now, that's very interesting, my friends, for a couple of reasons. In the first place, evidently, it was something of a discussion. And, and Bible scholars have really pointed this out. That evidently, there was something of a discussion already in those days about who had the right to receive baptism. We think that this is just a discussion limited to our circles. Who has the right to be baptized? But evidently, this was a discussion already taking place in the New Testament church. And of course it would have been an issue, right? Because with baptism coming in the place of circumcision, there would have been questions. Now, of course, we would love if the New Testament would have addressed the question of should the infants be baptized, right? But evidently, this is already a question in the New Testament church. And you hear that something, something of that reflected in the question of the eunuch. What could hinder me? What reason could there be why I can't be baptized? And now Peter exclaiming when he sees the household of Cornelius, what reason could anyone bring why these people can't be baptized? Evidently, people brought lots of reasons why people couldn't be baptized. 
But Peter, under the influence of the Spirit of God and being taught by that sheet coming down from heaven, exclaims, I can't think of any reason why these Gentile believers should not receive baptism just as anyone else does. Now, that's Peter's exclamation. Now, another thing. Notice that Peter doesn't immediately say, oh, well, uh, we should get these people circumcised. There's not a hint of that in this, is there? Now, we wouldn't expect Peter, Peter to say that because we know that Jesus said, right, go into all nations, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? So when a person becomes a disciple of Christ, they are to be baptized, no longer circumcised. But still, you see already that the transition has taken place. And perhaps, I don't think we have to say perhaps, there must have been more instruction from Jesus to his disciples on this. Now God in his sovereignty has not chosen to give us that in the scripture. And yet we must believe that Jesus must have had more instruction to his apostles about how they were to handle this. But we do know that circumcision has now been laid aside and that baptism has come in its place. And so that these people are now to be baptized. And Peter joyfully shouts in exaltation, as it were, in a, with a joyful exclamation. Why? These people have the right to baptism. That's Peter's exclamation. Well, that brings me then to this point of application, my friends, that I'd like to consider with you. This is a very theological application. But I know this question arises often in the minds of people, and, and, it's, a, and it's a question that this chapter actually can speak to us this evening or this morning. And so I want to take up this issue, and I know it's a bit controversial, but I think it's important that we see what this passage can teach us about this question that we constantly have in our minds and in our families and our churches, right? Of who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? We want to ask the same question that Peter is asking, and that's behind the question of the eunuch, right? If nothing hinders this person from being baptized, well then, what is the qualification? What is the prerequisite for baptism? And can this chapter help us to understand this? Now, I think this chapter does help us to understand that question. But before we talk about who, we should, be, who should be baptized, my friends, I think that this chapter helps us to understand what baptism is. So there's a, a prior question then that I want to deal with. Before we jump immediately to the question of who should be baptized, I want to step back and consider, first of all, just what is baptism? And what is it a sign of? I think by, the, by, the, by, by clearing up this point, it'll actually help us to answer the second question. Now, clearly, by this point in, in the history of, 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 of the kingdom of God, circumcision is out and baptism is in. When exactly that happened or what instruction Jesus gave on that point, we're not given. Well, so we come then back to Acts chapter 10 and we want to consider this. Now, the striking thing about what takes place in this passage as it pertains to baptism is how, how sudden and how immediate the baptism is that takes place. Notice that Peter is preaching along. He's giving the standard sermon that we've seen so many times already, right? Preaching about Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah, right? And that in faith in his name, you have forgiveness of sins, right? 
And then he's interrupted, right? The spirit falls down upon the audience. They, they, they receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then immediately they are baptized. Right? There's, 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 there does not appear to be any space of time. Again, I read in, in verse 47, Peter exclaims, right? Surely no one can refuse baptism for these. And in verse 48, and he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And there's something of the immediacy of the baptism that takes place here that is what I want to call your attention to. How quickly, after the Spirit falls on these people, they are baptized. Now, the next thing that I want to point out to you is the connection that Peter sees between the thing that is signified by baptism and the sign of that reality. There is the reality, which is the baptism of the Spirit of God. In fact, if you turn to the next uh, chapter in chapter 11, where Peter returns to Jerusalem, and he's explaining to the Jewish people there what happened to him. And if you look in verse 16, Peter's explaining to the Jewish people there, and he says, And I remembered the word of the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So these people, who are Cornelius' household, had been baptized with the Holy Spirit. That is the reality, the spiritual inward reality that takes place. The water baptism is the sign, the picture of that reality. And Peter's logic here in Acts 10, right? Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. In other words, back we did it in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. So Peter's logic here is that these people are entitled to baptism because they have this baptism of the Spirit of God, this inner baptism this inner reality. And therefore, they're entitled to receive the sign of that reality. So Peter bases their right to receive the sign on the fact that they've already received the reality of it, what it points to, what it's a sign of. Well, consider that reality. Consider that baptism of the Spirit of God. If baptism is the sign of this inner spirit baptism, then there's, there's a parallel. We should understand them to be more or less similar, with the exception, of course, that the one is an external thing, right? The, the application of water to a person, and the other is inner and spiritual, the work of the Spirit of God, purifying, right? John the Baptist said, he'll baptize you with, with water and with fire, or he'll baptize you with the spirit and fire. Fire, they're understood as a purifying agent. My point, however, here, my friends, and I hope you see this, is that baptism for the house of Cornelius was not something that they did. Do you see that this morning? It was not an action that they performed. It was something that happened to them. You might say that in it, they were entirely passive. Again, there was no... It is not as if Peter said, and now let's all pray to receive the Spirit of God. No, nothing like that. In fact, I tried to emphasize in the explanation of the text, the suddenness of it, the unpredictability of it. The Spirit just falls upon them suddenly. 
Well, the, the conclusion that I draw from that, my friends, is that in a similar way is, what we, is how we are to understand the water baptism, that it is a sign of this inner reality. And that when we bring people to be baptized, uh, when we come for baptism, even as an adult, that we are not coming to, to do something ourselves, but that the baptism itself is something that God is doing in our life. If spirit baptism brings us into the invisible church, the re reality, then water baptism brings us into the visible church. I think that too is a, a, a good way to understand it. That by the baptism of the spirit, God brings us, he incorporates us into the body of Christ, into the church, into the invisible church. And by water baptism, we, with our limited knowledge, right, because we can't see into the heart of anybody, of course, we bring people into the visible church. Now, is that how baptism is understood then? And I put several of these quotes. I put four of these quotes on the, on the notes because I want you to read these. Because in Baptist churches, and again, my friends, I've said it millions of times, right, that we, we, we respect our Baptist brethren as brothers and sisters in Christ, and in no way is this to be a, a negative uh, comment on their life and walk with God. But theologically, we can see an issue here. So look at, this is uh, the first quote I gave you there is from Millard Erickson, who wrote an excellent systematic theology, by the way. I consult this book. It is an excellent book. However, notice his definition of baptism. Baptism is then an act of faith and a testimony that one has been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, that one has experienced spiritual circumcision. It is a public indication of one's commitment to Christ. Now, as you read that, you read how baptism is an act of faith. In other words, it's an act of my faith. And it's a testimony. In other words, it's my testimony that I have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. But my friends, as I read Acts 10 and the, and the explanation of baptism that we have there, I would say that baptism is, scrap all those first words that he says, and say, baptism is God uniting me with Christ in his death and resurrection. Do you see the difference? Because baptism in, is, in, in the first place, not me saying, I now believe in Jesus and I'm now united with Christ. But baptism is a picture of what God does. And the only reason I say that, my friends, is only because of what I read in Acts 10. That the sign is to be compared to the reality. And the sign is to be understood in relation to the reality. And the reality was that the Spirit of God fell down upon them. Do you see the, the one-sided character of the work of the Spirit baptism? The baptism of the Spirit that came upon the household of Cornelius and earlier came on the Jewish people in Acts chapter 2. Now this second quote is even more problematic in my opinion. Uh, First, uh, Dr. Ray Pritchard, again, a good man, writes, it means we have turned from the old life of sin to a new life in Jesus Christ. We have turned. Second, it means we are publicly identifying. In other words, I am identifying myself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Third, it means we are openly joining the ranks of those who believe in Christ. You see how much the emphasis here is on what the person being baptized is doing. 
I ask you, is that how you understand the baptism of the Spirit, the reality of which it is a picture? And then I, I, uh, I, I thought I would go to some of the churches in the area here. Radiant Church, so Radiant Church, uh, different campuses throughout Kalamazoo and Portage, had a statement on their website that says, being water baptized is the outward proclamation of a decision to follow Jesus. And then Calvary Bible Church. Water baptism is to be administered by immersion to believers in Jesus Christ in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the public testimony of the believer's faith in Christ and symbolizes being united with Christ in the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, actually, of all of them, this is the least objectionable, I find, because I think I could, if you understand it properly, you could accept really the whole of this. Baptism, except, except this part, though, is, is the part that is it's very... Uh, I'm not comfortable with it. Baptism is the public testimony of the believer's faith in Christ. Well, my friends, in all of these quotes, in each one of these quotes, right, you see how in the Baptist understanding of baptism, there is such an emphasis on what a person is doing. And I'm sorry if I'm beating this nail too hard, but I want you to see that this morning, that there's a difference in our understanding of what baptism actually is. And that's really at the basis of why we answer the question differently of who should receive baptism. You see, if baptism in the first place is me testifying that I believe in Christ and unite myself to him in his death and in his suffering and in his resurrection, then we surrender the question immediately. Then infants should not be baptized. But if, on the other hand, baptism is something that God is doing apart from anything that we do, well, then the question is open, isn't it? My conclusion here is that spirit baptism is not a human action, and neither should we so understand water baptism. Spirit baptism is not a human act. Neither should we so understand water baptism. Two objections that I want to consider here. Some of you close readers of Scripture might say, well, Pastor Inglesma, in verse 47, doesn't it say, or Peter says in his exclamation, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And at first, at first read, you might think that that, that that does seem to indicate that these people were not entirely passive, right? That they, they did, in a sense, accept and, and embrace the Holy Spirit and believe, and he came down upon them. But don't misunderstand that word received, my friends. Notice that the, the words are followed just as we did. In other words, just as we did back on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This receiving is like what receiving you might do if you received an electric shock, right? You didn't do anything to get it, right? It just happens to you. So don't misunderstand, and, and we know that the word received has to be understood, not that they actively received the Holy Spirit, but that they passively received the Spirit. And we know that, right, because we can read the accounts in Acts chapter 2, and we can read the account here in Acts chapter 10, that this was something that happened to the believers, not something that they actively took hold of. So first place, I just want to answer that one objection. <clears throat> but there's a second objection here. And that is just this one, and I think this one is much more pertinent to us as Reformed people. Isn't faith important then? What am I saying here? That, 
that no profession of faith is important? Don't we require faith? Don't we require people to make a profession of faith before they join our church? Is faith not important? Well, my friends, certainly faith is important. It's not important. It's critical. Without it, there is no salvation. But let's understand now in terms of baptism, my friends. In terms of when we say, what is baptism? We are not saying that it's a sign of my faith in God. We are saying that baptism is a picture of what God does, joining a person to Jesus Christ. It is a sign in, in Acts, especially of the Spirit of God coming down in spirit and fire and cleansing and purifying the person. And to that, we respond in faith. Now, do you see the critical distinction there? That baptism in and of itself is God's action, God's saving action in Jesus Christ by means of the Spirit of God. And to that action, my friends, we respond in faith. The baptism itself is not my testimony of faith. I respond to it in faith. That's why when you go back and when you read our brothers and sisters saying these expressions, uh, again, if I can go back to the first one by, by Dr. Erickson, that baptism is then an act of faith and a testimony that one has been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. In a sense, we can even accept that, right? So long as you understand that, that we respond in, at, the, at baptism, we do respond in faith, that the cleansing action that is signified before us, we respond to it in faith. We embrace that saving action. We believe in it. And I think one of them here said, uh, yeah, the second one says, it means we are publicly identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. No problem with that. Just so long as you understand that that's not, the baptism itself is not that. But we respond to it in faith. And yes, we do publicly identify ourselves with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. But baptism itself represents to us the action of God. And to that, we respond in faith. The great German theologian, Pennenberg, he wrote this one very simple line, my faith does not make baptism, it receives it. So yes, of course, my friends, we never want to speak disparagingly of faith, or as if faith is unimportant, or you can take it or leave it, or even a confession of faith. But let me ask you, how many times did you read in Acts chapter 10, for verse, the last part there, of a confession of faith? It's not mentioned there. It may very likely have taken place. But there is no mention there in the, the passage that a confession of faith was required. And again, there's something of an immediacy there, isn't there? The Spirit fell down upon them, and immediately they were baptized. Now, one reason that no profession of faith was needed was because of the visible acts of the Spirit upon these people. They began to speak in tongues. They began to exalt. They began to praise God. So, in other words, God himself had pointed out, these are the disciples that need to be baptized. Now, of course, we don't have that. So, when an adult comes to our church and asks for baptism, we have to ask for a profession of faith. Because we don't have the, the miraculous uh, effects of the Spirit of God to identify who these people are, if they're really Christians or not. So we ask for a profession of faith. But the profession of faith isn't the essential point. The, the, the essential point is, are you a disciple of Christ? So, I want to then move on to the second point 
of application, which of course is the question that stirs up in our minds, can we refuse water to our children? That's what Peter said. Can anyone, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized? And we ask the same question. Can we refuse water to our children to be baptized? Well, to stick with Acts 10, the next question is going to be, do they have the reality signified by the sign? Do they have the baptism of the Spirit of God? If they have the reality, then in no way may you deny them the sign of it. Well, how can we know? We certainly don't have in Acts 10 that the infants can speak in tongues or anything like that, right? That wouldn't even be possible. We can't ask them for a profession of faith. And so we're left wondering then, upon what basis can we give infants baptism? How can we know if they have the reality, the spirit baptism, if we're going to give them water baptism? Well, what if God told us? What if God made that clear to us in his word, that children too can have the spirit of God? I think that would do it, right? That would be enough for us. I think that should be enough for anybody. You say, well, we can't know. Well, no, we can't know. We can't know if an adult has faith, right? If the most pious person in the world stands before me, I can't really know that his heart is right with God. I mean, the apostles baptized Ananias and Sapphira and, and the rest of them, right? They didn't know. So if God gives us some indication in his word that children too are to be regarded as filled with the spirit and that we can baptize them on that basis, then we would do so. Well, now I want to ask one of the children if they remember what Peter said in his first sermon in the first Pentecost. Because I know I brought that out. Do you remember? For the promise is to you and your children. What promise? The promise of the Holy Spirit, right? The promise that he had just been talking about. Remember, we quoted from the prophet Joel. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons shall prophesy. Your daughters shall dream dreams. The promise is unto you and your children. The Apostle Paul, and I preached on that too, I think some months back, said, remember that if one of the believing, if one of the spouse in the marriage is a believer, then your children are holy. Holy. And then one last question. I'd like you to turn here. If you could take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I want you to see this in your own Bible, my friends. In Luke 1, and if you'd look with me at verse 15. In Luke 1 and verse 15. Speaking of John the Baptist here. Luke 1 and verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. When? When he reaches age 15, 16, 17, and can make a profession of faith, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Before he is even born, my friends, we're not even talking about infants anymore. Now we're talking about a, 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 a baby still in, in his mother's womb and being filled with the Holy Spirit. So we must say at least it's possible then from this verse, right? At least it's possible that even infants can be full of the Spirit of God 
And if God gives us these indications that we are so to regard our infant children, then we act on the basis of his command. And we give them the sign because we believe, again, we, we can't know, but we give a charitable assumption that they have the reality. And on that basis, my friends, we give them the sign of baptism. And we say with Peter, can anyone hinder? Can anyone hinder these infant children from receiving the sign of baptism? To sum it all up, my friends, I think, again, if you have discussions with Baptist people, I think just a very simple question is, are infants capable of receiving the Holy Spirit? Does God give us any indication, any, any reason to believe that infant children might also have the Spirit of God? Again, just a question that you can consider with them on the basis of what Scripture teaches. My friends, that brings to a conclusion then this sermon. How can we bring this to a close? I want to bring this to a close with this simple announcement, my friends, from John. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we might be called the sons and daughters of God, we and our children. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we do marvel at your grace, which has also brought us into the into the kingdom of God and into your family. And we do marvel this morning, Lord, that the sovereign work of the Spirit of God represented to us in baptism is something that we can take, take hold of by faith. And our children, though not yet able to believe and to take hold of it themselves, they also are included in it. That They also receive the Spirit of God, just as John the Baptist received the Spirit of God before, long before he was even born. So, O oh Lord, this promise of the Spirit is given to us and to our children. And so we baptize them. We pray, Lord, that you would make real in their life what was signified to them. So that we could also see, Lord, that you are cleansing them by your Spirit. By your Spirit and by fire. That they are your workmanship. And that these children would grow and mature into young women and to young men zealous for good works, zealous to do the calling, Lord, that you will place upon them. Lord, will you bless this message, a, a, a rather different message, Lord, in some respects, and yet a point of theology that uh, is a cause of so much division in our churches. And we pray, Lord, that there could be uh, a coming together, even, even, even with the difference being present, agreeing to disagree, as we often say, Lord, that you'd give us grace in our hearts to embrace our brothers and sisters who see this point differently. But that alike, uh, we would both alike come to the scriptures and submit to it and see where it leads us. Be ready to receive the evidence wherever it might take us. And to be ready to confess your name before this fallen and broken world in which we live. Lord, please hear our prayer. We commit ourselves into your hands. Bless our brother who will preach for us this evening. We pray, Lord, that the congregation might be blessed. There might be bread in the house of God this evening for your people. And that we might eat and be satisfied and rejoice in God our Savior. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn in the blue hymnal and sing to God's praise from number 479. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. And in verse 2, I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand. 
and we'll sing the five verses, all the verses of 479 in the Blue Hymnal. Amen.